I'm not used to having a partner up here, and I've filled her seat with my materials. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to slow down and to take three deep breaths so that you might be aware of the Spirit's presence here, and you might allow yourself to be held by this house of prayer. Let us worship in beloved community. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. God, you love each of us and all of us. Let us embody you as individuals and as a community. Our faith is both personal and corporate. Our salvation is not only ours individually, but ours collectively. Open us to a wider comprehension of your desire for us. Tune our hearts to the well-being.
You may be seated. I want to welcome you here to worship at Westminster. It is good to be with you today. After worship, I do invite you out to our garden area for coffee, tea, and snacks, and perhaps most importantly, after worship, a time to get to know each other just a little bit better. I do encourage you, if you're sitting by someone that you may not recognize, to introduce yourselves to one another. Let's join together now in the community prayer. Let us pray. God, many of us have been reared in a faith concerned exclusively with the individual. We have enjoyed the fruits of reassurance, of guidance, and of empowerment. We have also been needlessly bound by this narrow understanding of faith. Forgive us for adapting our religion to a form of personal escapism for failing to take responsibility for one another, and for living with only our own journey in mind. Join us to the quest for restoring the whole in each of its parts. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, hear the good news that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. Let us rejoice that over and over we are given the chance to begin again. Nothing we have done, nothing we will do will separate us from God's love. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'd now like to invite the children who are worshiping with us to join Jeff here at the front. morning. Thinking about creating things, we got, we gave away some Play-Doh last week, or even yesterday we gave away a lot of Play-Doh as favors for people who came to a birthday party. And, you know, when you create something really good with Play-Doh, you like to show it off to people. Some people, they make pretty cool things. They make like these sort of pies. And that probably took a while to make that, don't you think? They were really careful about making that. But maybe if your Play-Doh's not your thing, you do something like Legos, and you make really cool things with Legos, and you work really hard on it, and you like to show it off, and you love Legos. I wonder what kinds of things you create, and like you like to show off. Maybe you like to help make a meal, and you work really hard on it, you're proud of it, or maybe you work with tools in your house with your parents safely <laughs> and you make things or fix things around the house and you like to you're proud of that you know it took God it took a long time for this world to be created the way it is and God was there forming it in the beginning and creating it what do you, do you think God was really proud of the universe that was created yeah. but maybe but 
what about you? Because it took a long time to create each of you. I mean, you're the only one like you. You're the only one that thinks the things that you think. You're the only one that looks the way you do. You are totally unique. And it took a long time to create you. Your parents had to find each other and have a child. And their parents had to find each other and have a child. And your grandparents had to find each other and have a child. And your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents and all these people had to find each other and have a child so that you could end up here. So do you think, after all that work, that God is proud of making you? And if God's proud of making you, or if not, that might mean something if you're in trouble. And so those of you going to sacred stories will find out how God felt about creating this world and creating each of you. And then those of you in the third through fifth grade class will find out what that means. If God creates you, what does that mean if you're in trouble sometimes? So let's go find out what God might have thought about those things. Lucy Carrico, and when Christina Hansen asked for me to deliver the message about stewardship, I immediately said yes. I was honored to be asked, but I was petrified, petrified about what I was going to tell you that might be interesting to you and that would meet the objectives of the stewardship committee's ask. They'd asked me a very simple question, why do I give? Why do I give to Westminster Presbyterian Church? And to be honest with you, I hadn't really ever given that a lot of deep thought for a very long time. And as I pondered it, it came down to one very simple reason. But before I share that reason with you, I'd like for you to indulge me as I tell you a brief story and take you on my journey as to how I got here. My husband and I moved to Tiburon in 2000 with our two boys. At the time, they were two and six. It was a bit of a homecoming for my husband as he had grown up here in Tiburon. And for me, it was exciting to think about raising our children in this community near his family. We immediately started coming to Westminster Presbyterian Church, not because Todd had grown up in this church, but because we had witnessed how this church could reach out to people who were in need. My husband actually didn't grow up in church at all. He came from a family that didn't bring their children to church and didn't baptize their children. In fact, his father told me once that he'd had a negative experience as a child and didn't want his children to have that experience, so he left it to them to find their own spiritual path. So... We started coming, and our children enjoyed Sunday school, time of discovery, snacks, the jungle gym, mini Christmas pageants, and Todd and I got a lot out of the services, the meaningful messages, the joyful music, the friendly fellowship. There was middle school mission trips, high school confirmation, high school mission trips, And we didn't join until many years later, but we started giving early on. But it was just a nominal amount, 
And it was sometime in middle school years after a service like this that we went home and looked at our expenses and where we were spending our money beyond our day-to-day -day needs. And we realized we had a three-legged stool. We were giving a lot of money to our schools. We know they need our support in order for us to get the education we want for our children. There was organized sports. We all know how expensive that can be. And there was the church. And we realized our stool was a bit wobbly and that we were giving far less to the church than what we were getting out of it. So we upped our amount at that time to a more meaningful level. Well, now fast forward to today. Our boys are grown. They have a strong spiritual foundation. They know this is their church home. And Todd and I continue to enjoy coming to the services on Sunday, the enjoying the hot coffee, knowing the bills are paid, the lights are on, the sanctuary is prepared, the meaningful messages are delivered, and there's beautiful music to listen to. So why do I give? I give so that Westminster will be here every Sunday and all the days in between for me, for my family, for you and your family, for our friends, our visitors, our guests, our community, those in need, that's why I give. And I hope you'll join me today in making your pledge to Westminster. And if you've never given before, there's purple and green cards in the pews, and you don't have to be a member. And if you do give, and your stool's a bit wobbly, maybe this is the year to fix it. Thank you. Thank you. It's our time to uh, join together in community prayer to really commune together with the spirit that brings us here and that is the source of our inspiration as a people and as individuals. So I'd like to ask you to take a moment to think about people who are on your mind, in your heart, that have been of concern to you or people that you are celebrating, uh, that you wish to lift up in that way, as well as possibly situations in the world around you that also arouse your concern or even your hopes. And then as we have the time of prayer and as you feel comfortable, I'll invite you at a certain point to call those out, just a word or a phrase as we are together in prayer and can hold those people and those situations in prayer together. So let us take a moment of silence and then let's pray. God, we are so glad that we can pray together and that being together is much greater than any one of us alone. We are confident in you, who are so infinite and yet so intimate with all of the concerns of our lives. We're glad that your unconditional presence embraces the full range of who we are and what we hope for and what we encounter. God, hear us now as we mention persons near to us and dear to us, 
who are facing life difficulties or whom we celebrate, or any situations or events in the world that have been of concern as well. Lord, hear us. God, we lift up today, especially young people, teenagers around the world who this week by the millions came together and asked of our leaders everywhere policies and actions that would safeguard our common future. We pray that they are heard and that they also will find the courage to persist and challenge us, their elders. God, we remember the scripture that says, and a little child will lead them. In the midst of so much that seems sometimes negative and discouraging, God, we ask you to help us notice the good, to look for the positive, to tell stories, about those who inspire us or who act for justice or create positive change and seek to live faithfully. Help us to even see in the negative how it can bring clarity about what is important that we truly desire, that we wish to stand for in your spirit. And may we all be mindful of the blessings that we find moment by moment in this life. We pray in the name of Jesus, our teacher, who set an enduring example of faithfulness and compassion and action in the midst of an an imperfect world, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
first scripture reading is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18, through chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Our second reading is uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, Instructions Concerning Prayer. I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made in all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a, a, a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. It's a movie scene. A young couple has driven off the side of the road and gotten into an accident. And a man rushes through the tall grass to get to the car to see if they're okay. We're shown the inside of the car where there's a young married couple. The man badly injured but still alive. His eyes are open but he's unable to move and barely even able to speak, just staring straight ahead. His wife lays limp in his lap, we're unsure of her fate. The man reaches uh, the driver's side window, which is rolled down, leans in and asks them if they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I can see some of the expressions on your face. If, God forbid, you find me on the side of 101, please do not lead with that question. First of all, we're good, and second of all, I would prefer, do you need an ambulance? That question and that theme dominates the film. It's the apostle, if you've seen it, starring Robert Duvall as this fiery preacher, fiery in more ways than one, this question of personal salvation. It's also a 
question that has dominated many wings of the Christian movement. Now, I'm not here to make light of anyone's faith or the intensity of that experience. Maybe you've had it of giving your life over to God or to Christ. No, not at all. But I am here to say that I think when we define the totality of the Christian faith so narrowly that we just miss so much, that there's such a spacious territory into which God is inviting us in Jesus Christ to make it simply about answering a certain phrase one way, gosh, not only makes our faith journey small, but it makes God awfully small. Perhaps the assurance of your salvation has been a source of great comfort, wonderful, But for many, it's been a source of fear and torment. Young people growing up terrified if they are or aren't. And still many others have been pushed away altogether. And if we can take a step back and look at it, this notion that uh, the whole point is to uh, accept God in a certain way in order that we would be saved from presumably God's eternal punishment, and God makes it all right by killing God's only son and having us accept that as truth. It's sort of a perverse formula, is it not? It seems twisted to me, certainly not the whole of things. So let's just be released of it once and for all. Let go of it. Be invited into that more spacious territory. You don't have to leave the tradition behind to get there, by the way. In fact, it's the tradition that will lead you there, irony of all ironies. Do you know how salvation, which is all over the biblical narrative, do you know how it's talked about most of the time in Scripture? Particularly in the Older Testament. Salvation is about our experience on this earth in this life. First and foremost, you heard it referred to in Jeremiah, albeit in a negative example today. The people haven't been faithful and they're suffering all kinds of repercussions as they see it. Enemy threat, famine, what we would call natural disaster. And what do they cry out? We have not been saved. Now, if they were talking about getting to heaven, that phrase would make no sense because they're talking about their state in the here and now. And that's exactly how salvation was used back then to describe very everyday needs. Salvation meant you had enough to eat, you had enough to drink, you were safe from enemy threats, and so on and so forth. Salvation, if you're looking for a synonym, perhaps, one that's a little less loaded spiritually, just think of it as well-being. Salvation is well-being. And if you want to add to it, you can add the phrase of the people. Because in Scripture, it's undeniable that salvation is primarily a communal good, not an individual one. It's a collective reality, not simply a personal reality. Reality. Remember what Jeremiah says, the people cry out, we are not saved. This highly individualized notion largely comes from people's reading, or you might say misreading, or at least too narrow reading of the Newer Testament. 
And the passages are numerous. Uh, the one that comes to my mind is from the second chapter of Acts after the Pentecost story. And there's a phrase that says, uh, and the Lord was adding to their number those being saved. It sounds like people lining up to get their ticket punched to an exclusive club. That's what it reads like. Until you read the totality of the Acts story, what is Acts about? These are the first Christians. These are the people who are trying to figure out what to do in light of Jesus' death and resurrection and now ascension into heaven. You know, what, did, what did he mean and what does all of it mean for them? And they didn't go on a crusade to get people to heaven. Acts, especially in the early chapters, talks about all, they thing, all the things they did to figure out how to live together. The people of Acts' response to the Jesus moment was basically to live in a commune. I know, dangerous in this culture. But that's what they did. They shared all their material goods, all their wealth, and they distributed them based on what people needed. Their response to the so-called saving act of Jesus Christ was to share stuff. That's how they understood it. Salvation for them was, and for us, is not primarily a uh, personal devotional guide or a private ethical code of conduct. As important as each of those things uh, is, it was much bigger it was not about what you prayed in private only. It was about how you lived in relation to other beings. That's what it meant to be a Christian from the very beginning. I came across another passage just doing some devotional reading, sort of ironically, I suppose, in light of what I just said, uh, this week from the book of James, another book in the Newer Testament. And this is what the author says in it, to the dismay of the likes of one Martin Luther. James says, can faith save you, your faith? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Can faith save you, says James? No. Now why? Well, if we understand salvation as well-being, then the answer is obvious. Because private faith alone doesn't necessarily contribute to anyone's well-being. Maybe your own, to an extent. And so by definition, it doesn't bring salvation it only brings salvation if it leads to some lasting transformation in care in the community. Salvation in this understanding is not about getting yourself to heaven. It's about helping earth look a little more like it. Ellen Davies, a professor of Bible and practical theology at Duke Divinity School, says that salvation reminds us not that we have an option to be rescued apart from others, but rather, it's about recognizing that the health of one, quote, depends on the health of the other. So you could say another synonym for salvation is health. 
Davies goes on to say, in fact, that salvation is healing. It's the healing of social wounds, the community's malady. So you could say salvation is public health. That's a biblical definition, essentially. Another word you could use is justice. And what is justice? If you just look at it, I know it's a loaded term. Justice is just, a a just society is a well-healed society. Where no one group or one set of members is discriminated against or is overly disadvantaged, that the wounds of the people are healed. That's all that justice means. It's just love enacted in the public sphere. It's a communal good. First Timothy reaffirms that. I know it sounds like a personal salvation testimony, but what does God say in First Timothy? God desires, I'm pointing this way because usually I read that passage. <laughs> God desires all people to be saved. Everyone, it says in the New Revised Standard Version. Well, Davies pushes us to expand our definition of everyone. And mature spirituality always invites expansion, never contraction. So Davies says, when you say everyone, it's not just about the health of one human depending on the health of another. It's actually the health of humanity depending on the health of the earth. Now, this seems like a radical notion in some religious circles, but it's as obvious as obvious can be to anyone. You don't have to be a scientist to understand that the health of any one member is dependent on the health of its ecosystem, right? This is just plain as day. And we are waking up now to that reality, I think, with a new intensity. The health of any member depends on the health of its ecosystem. And what is ecology or ecosystem, where do those words come from? They come from the Greek word oikos. And what does oikos mean? It just means house. We live in God's house. We live in one shared house. And if you take Davies seriously, if our house is not well, we're not well. This is a far cry from contemporary fundamentalism, which has some things to offer the world, passion, which is really about escaping this fallen, crooked, broken, wretched world to get off to some other place. Also not biblical, by the way. But these problems have been deep in our tradition. Ancient Gnosticism fell, which also has things to offer, fell for the same trap and made the whole of the spiritual path about escaping the material world. The problem is, that's not what Jesus embodies. In Jesus, we say God comes into the world and inhabits it in a particular way. And to be like him is to likewise inhabit this world righteously. How does Jesus Christ save us? And I believe he does. How? Is it just by dying? Or is it also by showing us how to live? Jesus showed us how to live in a way that heals a sick ecosystem. 
Repeatedly, he heals individuals, and in doing so, one of the things he does is he restores them to the good graces of the community, and he lifts up the functioning of the community. He does this time and again by standing by the members of the society that are endangered to continue with that motif. And he doesn't declare war on the ones doing the damage. He doesn't seek to annihilate his enemy. Why? Because he recognizes It's about everyone. In fact, not only does he not go after the enemy, he preaches loving the enemy and and rescuing the enemy. This is in part the Good Samaritan story, is it not? To rescue the one you've been taught to hate. Why? Because we cannot be saved apart from the salvation of all. Because then it's not true well-being. It's interesting That rescue is another synonym for salvation. And we've typically translated that and understood that to be, we need to be rescued from God's wrath. But I don't think that's at all what Christ was about, rescuing us from a cocked and loaded God ready to unleash on us. I think Christ rescues us from our worst instincts, our tendency to forget that we can only be saved together. When we go out and think it's just about grabbing enough for me and mine and leaving others behind, Christ in his very way of being rescues us from that way of being. Salvation is not something you earn in order to get eternal life. Salvation is a way of life. I know Many of you watched as I did as that horror came to the Bahamas. Wiped out, it seems like whole islands, whole communities just flattened. I read this morning that the smell of death is still overpowering there. So many were lost. By the grace of God, I suppose some were rescued. And some were partially rescued. At, At least... As of a couple of weeks ago, according to multiple news outlets, there was an effort to go and and save some of these people and bring them here to safety till they could recover and hopefully go back home and where they want to be and rebuild. And typically, you don't have to have a passport to travel from the Bahamas to the mainland here. And even though the acting uh, chief of border protection and customs advocated from within that we grant these refugees temporary protected status. It was denied. And more than that, people were demonized, called very bad people, very bad gang members, very, very bad drug dealers. Now, smart people can disagree about foreign policy, Smart people can wrestle with the challenges of the logistics of taking in refugees. This is going to be, I've said it before, the century of refugees and displacement on the planet. It's happening. There can be real conversation about that, but from where I stand, it seems to me for the wealthiest country on the planet to say no, not only fails to reach the standard of basic human decency, more importantly, it misunderstands the concept of salvation in this supposedly Christian nation. 
Because even though we can fall individually, as the quote on your bulletin cover says, we can only be saved together. And if they're not well, by definition, we are not well. Are we saved? Traditional Christianity would say, yes, and I agree with that. And no, not so long as we fail to recognize that we can only be saved together. It's incompatible otherwise. It doesn't work. So the couples on the side of the road, perhaps pregnant with new life, Villages of people, towns of people have had their island wiped out by hurricanes. We show up. We look at them. We see the suffering. We can either talk a good game about Jesus or we can act like him. Amen.
You may be seated. I may sound like a broken record, for those of you who still remember records, but (laughs) weekly we remind you to to read your bulletin to see what's going on in the life of this beloved community, and you'd be amazed how many calls we get to the office about things that are in here every week. Now that's okay, we understand you're not here every week and we want you to know, but uh, just know that it's a great resource for you, as is the website, as is our social media feeds about what's happening in this wonderful church. Just a few that I'll highlight for you today. Uh, next week, family uh, psychotherapist Laura Schwartz will be with us to she work especially with parents of young people to explore the topic, what values are important for our children to develop, and how can we uh, be a place that helps them build character that reflects our family's values and you might say our faith's values. And if you've experienced uh, Dr. Schwartz in the, in the past that It'll be a combination of her doing a little bit of presentation and a lot of sort of discussion. Uh, So come with your questions or your comments. And of course, you don't need to be a parent to be there, but it's particularly apropos for parents. Uh, Secondly, the Tiburon Half Marathon is next week. And one of the things we started to do to be a joyful presence in the community, we started this last year, is we go out there and we pass out water and we cheer people on. And a number of Westminster members run in that race. Uh, I'm told we will have t-shirts by next week, so now they know who we are out there cheering and have the church's name on it. If you're an early riser, uh, let me know. If you want to be a part of it, we could use a couple of folks. We usually get out there, I don't know, 7.30 or 8 and cheer until the 8.30 starts, and then uh, I come in and you stay out. Uh, We go from there. So let us know if you'd be interested in doing that. You may have noticed today when you came, we have a slightly smaller parking lot, which is good news. If you haven't seen, the temporary preschool building was delivered and constructed this week. That eats up a number of our spots. So I know some people walked for the first time today. That's terrific. Other people may start coming to the 830 service if you can handle that. Um, It's shorter. Uh, That's terrific. Or uh, carpool and uh, bike if you can to save room because it will become overcrowded. Uh, Finally, uh, the renovation obviously keeps moving along. We don't have much substantive to say today, but keep checking the bulletin board. It was updated this week. Once the renovation starts, that bulletin board will be in this room so you can see it. It's also virtually posted, so to speak, on the website, and there's a page there where we'll keep giving you updates. Even though the timing is still in the air to an extent, we will soon publish a list of where every group and class is meeting Uh, that we know thus far and contact people. So if you're wondering, where is my blank group going to meet, you'll have a place to go and see that. So by all means, stay engaged in the life of this community, even in this time of transition. With that, friends, let us rise and body our spirit for our closing hymn number 346.
Friends, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen. Thank you.